0: Well, welcome to to week five of of our series. And as I was studying this week, I I kept coming back to to this. I kept thinking a a lot about chess and the difference between playing checkers and playing chess and the movement that's there and how you had to think about it. And the thing that I've been continually amazed about during this series has been how the sovereign hand of God in the midst of all the chaos that is happening continues to move and work in such an amazing way. Whereas Satan, on the other hand, seems to be playing checkers this entire time. It's one move at a time. He's responding to what he sees. There seems to be no rhyme or reason. It just seems to be out of anger and and, and response. We see our sovereign God moving two steps ahead in the midst of all the process. In no place do we see this more clearly than what we'll see today in the sixth bowl. And as we talk about that, we're going to see a move where Satan makes a move and it appears like he has the upper hand, like God has made a mistake and somehow all is about to fall. And what we don't realize is, listen, is that in the very next move, it's about to be checkmate because our sovereign God is working in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of things that are here. You see, this tribulation, it's not just a bunch of random chaotic acts it 's not an angry God who is just punishing a world for no purpose. We see again a sovereign God who is merciful, but his righteousness demands justice and in that justice though he desires that many would be saved and we 'll see that over and over throughout the series. So last week, as we kind of catch up to speed, uh, last week we ended ended with the sixth trumpet. If you remember we 're in the middle of the tribulation there are seven three sets of seven judgments seven seals seven trumpets and seven bowls and last week we ended with the sixth of the of the seventh trumpets that were there and we saw the response of mankind two ways upon the justice of God we saw some who in the midst of seeing the mighty work and hand of God humbled themselves and repented And turn to Christ. We saw the gospel being preached by the 144,000 Jews and literally millions coming to know Christ. The scripture says more than we could number make professions of faith. Evangelistic movement. To the exact same circumstances, we see another group of mankind who hardens their hearts, right? Returns back to their sin. They double down on their sin. They reject the Savior at, at this point. And sadly, many of them remain in that state. And so as we closed out the time, we have the seventh angel raising the trumpet to his lips. And before he takes a breath, we get a little bit of an insight of what is happening again on the earth during this three and a half years. Again, if you remember the challenge of the book of Revelations for interpreting it and trying to preach it, we tend to always want everything to be linear, and there are book of revelations isn't written that way in the cultural times there's little pockets of insight well today we're going to get a little pocket on what else is happening in that three and a half years so if you've got your bibles turn with me to the book of revelations chapter 11 if you got your phones go to lexcity.info all the sermon notes are there that you can follow along with us as we go and let's continue on Now, before we jump into this and get going, some of you may be saying, well, pastor, this is the fifth week and you're only in Revelation chapter 11. Are we going to get through everything today? Uh, The answer is no. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking that I could do this in five weeks. Uh, So here's what we're going to do. We're going to finish the judgments this week. And then we're going to take a little break because we've got some seasonal topics and things we want to talk about. And then we're going to jump back into part two of this leading into Easter, which I think will be really rich. We'll spend some few weeks and hit the second part of this. So that's where we're going to be heading uh, during this time. And listen, if you think the events of this first half have been mind-blowing, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, The second half of this book is absolutely remarkable and uh, so encouraging and fascinating the things that are going to happen. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to finish off the first part, part one, uh, today, and then we're going to roll into uh, part two a little bit later. So as we're preparing for the final judgment, right, for the trumpet to blow... We find an unique, amazing thing. John, who's the writer of the book of Revelations, who's writing his visions, now writes not only what he has seen, but a fascinating thing happens. John now begins to play an active role in the vision that he's going to tell us. So Revelations chapter 1, and it says this. Then I, being John, was giving a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So John in this vision finds himself measuring with a rod the place where the temple, the foundation of the temple. And he's doing more than just marking out floor plans. Really symbolically what John is doing, he's reclaiming the rights of the temple. He's saying this is the thing. This will be reclaimed, and I'm marking out the rights. Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you've seen pictures like this. And this is a picture from our our crew that went uh, two years ago. And in the back, you'll see the, the golden dome of the rock, which you have seen many times. It's this Islamic shrine that's right there on the Temple Mount, that whole area there in the city of Jerusalem. It's really fascinating. Now, the thinking has been for years, listen, that in order for the temple to be rebuilt... Uh, it would have to destroy uh, the Rock of the Dome, right? If it's going to be rebuilt on that place, there's an Islamic shrine right there. It would have to be destroyed in order to rebuild the temple. Listen, this is hardly a great way to create peace in the Middle East, right? Uh, Destroy one of the well-known shrines in order to build a, a Jewish temple that's there. But yet we know somehow this has to happen, well, here's an interesting thing, and I showed you that picture the last time that we were in uh, in the Holy Lands. Again, part of the buzz in the last few years has really been around this conversation of, do we really think? And they are having finding archaeological evidence that gives evidence that possibly the temple, the temple of David, was not actually built. Uh, right there on the Temple Mount, but rather it was in the upper city that we might have the wrong location. Here's a picture from when we were there that gives some of the ruins there of where they think the temple might have been. Now think about this. If this is true and the temple is not there on the Mount, now this gives us great opportunity. You can see, if you remember the Antichrist, one of the things he does is he creates peace and the opportunity for the temple to be rebuilt. If the temple is not actually located on the Temple Mount, you don't have to destroy one temple to build another temple. Does that make sense? If that's true, pretty significant things that are happening even before our eyes. So that's the context. Revelation chapter one, it says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority for my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for uh, 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. So here's this little insight that we're mov- moving along in the trumpets. Chapter 11 says, Let me just bring it back and give you another little picture on what's happening. So we have these two witnesses that show up. So the question is who are these witnesses and what is their purpose? Now, we understand from what we just read that like they've been given authority from God and that they're going to prophesy for 1,260 days. So how long is 1,260 days? Some of you are already doing math. Remember this, though. They're using the Babylonian calendar. Babylonian calendar was a 360-day year, not 365 like ours. If they're using a 360-day calendar, how long is 1,260 days? You know the answer? three and a half years that we see. So as we look at this, let me put that timeline again that we've been working on through here. And if you'll see this first three and a half years of the tribulation, 1,260 days in that context, is really why I think we're looking at the things that are happening on that first half of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Does that make sense? That way where we're thinking? So that's why a personal opinion, right? Chapter 11, where we're gonna look at today, falls within that first three and a half years. So these two Witnesses come dressed in sackcloth, a little odd. They come to preach repentance for three and a half years with the authority of God. And here's the other thing they come with. They come with the protection of God. Go on to verse four. In these two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now listen, I don't know if it's real fire that comes out of their mouth, but if it is, that's pretty awesome stuff. I'm telling you what, man, let the haters hate. I'm telling you what, because here comes some fire. <laughs> you wanna come against me? It's smores for everybody. I mean, this is a miraculous thing that's happening as we go, too far probably, I know. But the point is, listen, it wouldn't take long for news to spread, right? These two dudes dressed in sackcloth, you speak out against them, You're dead within moments. Fire rises either way from them. Now, these two prophets, again, not only have the protection of God, but they also have the authority of God to to pronounce judgment. Continue on in verse 6. Amazing men. And they have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. I mean, can you imagine this kind of authority and power? We can understand why really quickly the crowd begins to turn, and really the world begins to turn against these two witnesses, why they continue to have further resentment and opposition to these men. I mean, listen, the one thing people don't want to hear is you're a sinner, you need to repent and turn to God, right? That's not been a popular message from the beginning of time. It's still not a popular message today. And if you fail to humble yourself and repent to the Lord, the two prophets say this, listen, we're going to cast judgment on you into an already ravished land, right? Remember all the things that we've talked about that have happening up to this point. This actually seems almost at times too much. So the lost world begins to hate these men and wish them to be dead because their judgment continues to bring more desolation onto the earth. So who are these two men that have all this power and authority? Shocker here, believe it or not, there's lots of different opinions. Uh, Like everything else that we've studied in this book of Revelations, different opinion on thoughts. All kinds of different thoughts. Some of them feel that it's Elijah and Enoch because they're the only two men in scripture who didn't physically die, so it must be those two. Uh, Some feel these two men simply represent the prophetic spirit of Elijah and Moses, Elijah, who represents the law and, and Moses, uh, Elijah, who represents the prophets, and Moses, who represents the law. These, whoever these two men they're symbolic of that spirit, prophetic spirit. Uh, I want to propose to you today, and it wouldn't surprise you trying to be consistent with how we've looked at this, this whole book. I want to propose, propose to you, I think these two witnesses really may be Elijah and, and Moses. In the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 4, says it this way It says, Remember the law of my servant Moses. The status, the rules that I command him at Horb for all Israel. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Reference to what we're about to experience. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Many will be saved, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. One thought. When I look at the power that's given to these two men, these two prophets, They seem a little familiar to me. Remember Elijah when he was coming against the prophets of Baal, if you remember in the Old Testament? Elijah prayed that the rain would stop. Any guess how long he prayed for the rain to stop? Three and a half years, you begin to see a theme that's here. James chapter five says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. It's potentially that. If you think about Moses, it doesn't take long to hear the plagues that these prophets are sending out that remind us again of the plagues that Moses used against Pharaoh, the 10 plagues that came. One other thought that I think may give evidence of that Matthew chapter 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember um, when Jesus is there, Jesus appears with two men. Who are the two men that he appeared with? Elijah and Moses. Simply proposing that it's not the first time, maybe not the last time, that they've been called into special service. little side note to all that. When Jesus appears uh, back with Elijah and Moses, they're in their glorified bodies, right? They've been in the presence of the Lord. And yet they're still recognized by Peter and James and John. When Jesus appears to the disciples... In the room, they know who he is. He shows his appearance, hands in his holes, in his hands, and in his feet. So, I, I think there's some indication for us again, even at the point in our glorified bodies, we will be recognized by our earthly appearance in some form. So, I'm just telling you, like this is gonna get an upgrade, but you still may look for a bald guy in heaven. That's kind of what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I was hoping it was gonna be different, but there seems to be some indication there's some things there. So, back to the text, right? So, three and a half years. Pass in this time. And the Antichrist can't desolate the temple and set himself up in the temple. Why? Because these two witnesses are there protecting the temple. But when the three and a half years end and the testimony of the two witnesses is finished, here's a marvelous thing, right? The Lord makes one more move and he removes his hand of protection from the two witnesses. Satan responds, and another piece on the board is forever changed. We see this again in verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, okay, and if we go back to the, can we put the chart back up? My opinion at this point, starting of this verse on, is when we move into the last three and a half years of the tribulation. We know the thing that marks the last three and a half years of the tribulation is, right, that Satan breaks his peace treaty with Israel, and the temple becomes desolate. That's the trigger that's there. So that's why I would put this to the first part, and I think this verse moves us to the second, just an opinion. Verse seven. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and will kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets who had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So we get this picture, right? End of the three and a half year, Lord removes his hand of protection. The Antichrist kills these two witnesses and the world watches. Now that little statement. Think about it in John's context, in John's time. This idea from John's perspective, like the whole world can see this event, this seems a little bit impossible. It must be figurative. There's no way the whole world could see this event, right? <laughs> Today, there's no 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 second thought to us, right? No surprise, this could happen. There's simply live stream right all around the world at ease. You can imagine there are channels 24 7 focusing in on the two witnesses. I mean, this is, this is nighttime news. Just reporting from uh, Jerusalem today. Three dudes roasted. It was awesome. You know, all these different angles that were there. Uh, they're, you know, this is happening, and now all of a sudden, they're killed. Front page of all news again. I, I, I can vision the streaming without any problem, and for three and a half days, they're left there, laying dead. And the world watches, and the world celebrates to the point of passing presence and rejoicing because these two men had called for repentance. Two men that had cast judgment are no longer there. And for three and a half days, the cameras right focus on the dead bodies. People coming, shooting selfies, hey, you know. uh, Posting like this is all the things that are happening. And then all of a sudden, at a pointed time, the breath of God enters these men. Go to verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. Ooh, news, here we go. The great fear fell on all those who saw them, and they heard a loud voice from the heavens saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to the heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed, and behold, the third woe is soon to come. And the seventh trumpet closes. And the angel blows the seventh trumpet in verse 15 and the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has come to the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Close out chapter 11. We, we fast forward chapter 16, right, to, for the final one. And we fast forward to the final judgment, the seven bowls in Revelations chapter 16. And Revelation 16, one says this, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, as we read these seven bowls, the final part of the judgment, notice the distinction. If you remember back, the seven trumpets affected one-third of the earth. The seven bowls will affect the entire earth. Things escalate. It'll be an impact. So verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And the harmful and painful sores came up upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. Mark of the beast, probably the question I get the most what is this and what does it look like? Mark of the beast is making reference to something we read earlier in Revelation chapter 13. It says this in verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast on the number of its name. This is called for wisdom. Let the one who understands and calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So number 666, it's just the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day that he has. And as much as man tries to reach perfection the number of completeness, 777, man always falls short. And so we have this idea that is 666 is where that comes from. Now it says a really interesting little little phrase there in, uh, in verse 17. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Some understand that to under, to mean this way, those who calculate, re- refers to which was the ancient code using numbers to represent letters. And in that ancient code, both the word beast and Nero Caesar, written in Hebrew characters, add up to the numbers 666. So some, that's where that idea of it comes back there. So in the idea that that's what it means, it's the number of man, but also the number of beast. Now, when we read Revelations chapter 13... It doesn't take a lot of imagination, right, especially in 2021, to imagine a world and picture a world where you can't buy without a mark, without a chip, or without a card, right? A world where you have to get, who knows what it will be, you have to get a body scan to enter into a grocery store, or to buy something, or all these kind of things. I mean, it doesn't take much for us to picture how this is possible, in a cashless society, if we move to a global currency, that's cashless. Again, you would have to have something in order to buy and to purchase. Now, I just want to encourage you to think about this because all kinds of questions. Oh, is this, you know, is the vaccine the, the beast? Is it this beast? I mean, every every generation's had what they think it is. Can I remind you that the mark of the beast, it, it's not simply a, a fiscal trans, uh, transaction. It's a, it's a spiritual sign of allegiance. So the taking of this. So whether it's foreheads or hands, think about different, in Jewish culture, where do you hide the word? Where do they write the the, the Torah? You know, they keep it in their forehead or on their wrist. So it, it's an idea of this. This is my allegiance. This is who I'm following that come with the, the position. So whether that's figuratively to mean allegiance or literally in those things, it's more than just a fiscal thing. It's an allegiance. So those who have taken the mark will be the ones who face the wrath of the first bowl. And the first bowl, what does it say? It's gonna be sores that have no cure. And if you've faced... If you face constant pain, right, you you know how this changes your disposition. (laughs) If you're in constant pain, man, this is what the earth is filled with. It's filled with people now who are in constant pain, who are in agony, who are angry, who are miserable. Can you imagine human relations and all that we've experienced up to this point and read about how strained they are, the things of the world? There's no peace anywhere, And the interesting things on these sowers versus some of the other judgments that's come, these sowers do not relent throughout the entire tribulation. We'll see them a little bit later. That's the first bowl. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of the water, and they became blood. So remember the trumpets? Trumpets impacted one third. Of the water and fresh water, but now the bowl poisons everything. The fourth angel pulled out his bowl on the sun, and it was swallowed to scorch the people like fire. And they were scorched by this fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Yet they did not repent and give him glory. Can you imagine this? So your water supply is dried up, and now you have scorching heat. Can you understand the the agony that was taking place at this point? Fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and the kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people gnawed at their tongues in anguish, and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. See, they remain. They did not repent again of their deeds. Fascinating little section here. So he brings darkness on the kingdom of the beast. Remember back in Egypt when Moses came through and he gave the plagues? And one of the plagues was darkness. Darkness. And darkness was all over Pharaoh's land, except for where? In the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. Here, darkness falls only on the throne of the beast, the ruler of the world, right? The self-proclaimed God who has it all. All of a sudden, darkness falls, and it only falls in one place. It falls on the throne where he is. And I love this idea. Can you imagine the world who begins to say, I think what's happening, darkness is only one place and it's where the beast is. And once again, God begins to flex his muscles and begins to move himself in position and begins to work sovereignly throughout scripture. And pawns like a chessboard begin to move and work and it puts us in position to what we're gonna see here at the sixth bowl where things are about to change. And the angel poured out his bowl on the great river of Euphrates, And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, when you first read this, when I first read this, it's like, well, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, we've had earthquakes and hail, and we've had sores, and there's been demons, and now you just dried up a river. Ooh, careful, easy on the rivers. But, you know, it's this idea of this. The fourth bowl, again, it makes sense why the river dried. The fourth bowl was what? Scorching heat. So Euphrates' rivers begins to dry up. Here's what makes this one so significant. The Euphrates River is no ordinary river. Uh, five times in scripture, it's referred to as the Great River. And it's the eastern boundary. Let me just give you a picture of this. And you can kind of, the little purple there is Israel. And above that, you can see the Euphrates River that, that runs to the, to the north side. Let me just give you a little context on that. It's the eastern boundary of Israel's inheritance in the book of Deuteronomy. So this is with the promised land uh, to that point. And it formed a natural Barrier for protection. When John wrote the book of Revelation, the Euphrates River was the natural divide between the east and the west, as it goes. It separated the kingdoms of China, India, and all the eastern countries at that point from Israel. Now, for those of you who just love historical things, let me give you a little bit of historical battle stuff. This stuff's amazing to me. The armies of Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon By simply doing this, they diverted the Euphrates River to another point, and the Euphrates River ran straight through the city of Babylon, and when they diverted the water, the Persian army walked in on dry riverbanks and conquered the city. Uh, We'll talk more about this at the Battle of Armageddon, but how strategic and how significant this place is. So this has happened a little bit before. So what's happened, we're gonna see a little bit later on at our next section, is this what's happened in the Battle of Armageddon, The armies from the east are going to cross in massive numbers the Euphrates River. They're going to march through Babylon, and they're going to enter Palestine and be set for the moment of the Battle of Armageddon. And this is what I love about God's sovereign plan. Satan and the armies think, oh, Lord, you've made a mistake. We've now moved ourselves into a tactical position. You've dried up the Euphrates River. We are now coming on Israel. And again, what we miss in the sovereign plan of God is God is two steps ahead. And he says, you didn't come here by choice. I've brought you the point of judgment and moved himself in a position that we'll see in chapter two, checkmate, the battle of Armageddon that comes. But the armies are moving because of what we see in the bull six. I find it fascinating. Hope you find it interesting. All right, I'll move on. It's so good. We're also going to see one last point. There's just so much. The Bible says this that the armies and the leaders of these armies are moved not just by their own ambition, but they're moved by demonic influence. Where Satan, through his demons, moved the minds of the leaders to say, Cross the river. Now's the moment to attack as we go. Verse 13 And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they were demonic spirits performing signs would go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God Almighty, all right? So they're moving in their minds. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and seem exposed. And they assembled them at the place that the Hebrew is called Armageddon. So as we close out this part, the, the, the setting is set for this final battle. The armies of the world in numbers that we have never seen before are all converging on this one point in time. But that's part two. We'll get to that in a little bit, in a few weeks. But I want to finish with this final in Seventh Bowl, all right? In seventh Bowl, God casts his judgment on the cities of the world. And here's the point He judges every stronghold that Satan has at this moment in everything he's established. He tears down his religious systems, his political and economic systems, and even his military systems after the seventh bowl are reduced to rubble. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there was flashes of lightnings and rumblings and Uh, Pearls of thunder and a great earthquake such as there have never been seen since man was on earth. Listen, you remember all these other judgments. We've had multiple earthquakes, but this is greater than everything. So great an earthquake that the great city, Jerusalem, was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of her fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. And no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from the heavens on people. And they cursed God for the plagues of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Very specific details. You think about that one. 100-pound hailstorms. If you've ever lived in a place that had hailstorms, you might have a slight sense of this. So we're from Nebraska. Nebraska has hailstorms. In fact, the first vehicle that Tammy ever, her and I ever bought together, brand new, uh, not too long after we had it, we had a hailstorm. And uh, simply little golf size, a little smaller than golf-sized hails totaled out the car. 100-pound hailstorms coming. The devastation is re- remarkable. It's bowling ball-sized stuff dropping from heaven. So mankind, what does he do, right? We've seen it over. Bows up, pride rises, he begins to curse God and blaspheme his name. Now don't be mistaken as we go in this, right? God is patient and God is merciful, but God's justice demands action. And this is what we see at the end. So a rebellious man curses and blasphemes the name of God. My mind rolls back to Leviticus chapter 4, the punishment for blaspheming the name of God was that you were stoned to death. And here we see at the end of the judgment, literally being stoned by 100 pound hail storm balls that are falling with the Lord's wrath. The time of mercy is over, right? And judgment is at hand as we close out this part. But in the midst of all this, I love that John quotes really the, the words of Jesus He says this to the Christians who are still alive during this tribulation period. And I think he would say the same to us as followers of Christ, the church, because it applies to us. Go back to Revelation 16, verse 15, as we close out. And he simply says this, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. John closes and reminds the church, can I be He says, I wanna remind you again of the imminent return of the Lord, right? Don't make the mistake of thinking that you have 72.6 years to to live your life before you'll see Jesus, right? If, If the study has done nothing for you, can I just help us to be reminded to think of eternity, to be reminded that the Lord will return and when he returns, will we be ready? I hope this series has reminded us that the world is moving towards a climactic, sovereignly planned finish that is about to happen. That time is short, and so calculate your days. But I love how John says, in really the words of Jesus, he says, don't just watch, watch passively, I want you to live purposely. According to, he has this, this unique phrase, you know, keeping your garments on. Here's where that comes from. Um, According to the Jewish historian uh, Mishnah, he says simply there the captains of the temple in Jerusalem would take their rounds to the precincts at night. And if a member of the temple police was caught asleep at his post, his clothes were taken off and burned, and he was sent away naked and disgraced. In other words, he's saying, Listen, these men had a purpose, these these men had a calling, and yet they were found asleep. They were found distracted. It lost focus. Challenge for us is really the same, right? If the temple guards came to our house, would they find you alert or would they find you distracted with the things of this world? Parents, what are we, in 2021, what are we living and modeling for our children? Are we living a life that has a missional purpose, something greater than ourselves with eternity in mind? Or have we just become distracted? Have we become lazy and indifferent? On the day they come, are we found asleep or are we found alert? So today, I just wanna leave you and I just wanna challenge you again with the words of Jesus. It's the beauty of the book of Revelation. It says, be blessed Be watchful and live faithful. Today matters because eternity is coming.